0: Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonnet Private Research team, as we pack our bags and follow the money. From complete denial of basic reality, to excruciating hypersensitivity toward it, Governments around the world adopted widely differing positions vis-a-vis the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Some nations left things like mask-wearing and social distancing up to individuals and their communities to decide for themselves. Others exploited the widespread fear and panic to act out some of their most draconian impulses, locking down entire populations and turning their once-free citizens into prisoners in their own homes. Which approach worked better? A year later, we're probably no closer to the answer. Sweden, most notably, opted for a fairly laissez-faire approach. Bars, restaurants and schools remained mostly open throughout, even as their neighbouring euro-nations clamped down hard. After an initial spike in cases and subsequent fatalities, Sweden's COVID cases dropped considerably and eventually fell more or less in line with the rest of the developed world. Deaths per million in the Scandinavian nation stand at approximately 1,300. Across the North Sea, meanwhile, the UK underwent one of, if not the strictest lockdown in Europe, with children missing months on end of school, unless you count pretending to Zoom to class, while restaurants, hotels and whole industries were shuttered for seasons on end, resulting in tens, perhaps hundreds of billions of pounds in lost commercial activity and livelihoods. The death count per million in the UK, 1,850. It's complex, you see. Even within individual countries, it's difficult to measure the effect, if any, lockdowns actually had. In New York State, Governor Cuomo made daily television appearances early on, urging citizens of the Empire State to ride it out at home, lest they sneeze on Grandma and send her off to an early grave. GovQuo even won an Emmy for what is rightly described as his performance throughout the whole ordeal. States like Florida, Georgia, and Texas, meanwhile, took a comparatively hands-off approach, largely letting individuals and businesses decide for themselves what measures of precaution they saw fit to employ. The results New York suffers the second highest deaths per million in the country, at over 2,500. Georgia, Texas, and Florida, much derided for their careless approach, rank 19th, 24th, and 27th in the nation, with roughly 1,700, 1,600, and 1,500 deaths per million, respectively. All this is not to say one approach is definitely right and the other absolutely wrong, only that the question at hand appears to be far more complex than a simple binary to lockdown or not to lockdown. Nevertheless, one nation that leapt at the opportunity to go full statist during the pandemic was your host's own country of birth, Australia. The state of Victoria in particular had no problem going scorched earth on civil liberties, arresting pregnant mothers in pyjamas for making inappropriate Facebook posts, and handcuffing journalists at press conferences, whom authorities suspected might dare ask the wrong questions of their dear dictator Dan Andrews. It was in the face of this authoritarian crackdown in the Victorian capital of Melbourne that my guest today, Mr. Greg Canavan, gathered up his wife and kiddos and hopped the border to his hometown of Wollongong in neighbouring New South Wales. It is perhaps worth noting here that although Victoria exhibited by far the harshest counter-COVID measures of any state in Australia, it nevertheless accounts for roughly 90% of the nation's deaths thus far, almost entirely owing to the government's own bungling of their hotel quarantine program, for which the man in charge, Dan Andrews, lost not one single day of pay, nor, we imagine, one single night's sleep. Well, I recently caught up with Greg on a sunny midweek morning in the gong to talk about all things COVID-related down under. You can even hear uh, a couple of his friendly neighbourhood cockatoos getting their two cents in during the conversation. A bit of Aussie fauna in there for you, no extra charge. We also took a deep dive into surviving and thriving in what Greg calls life at zero, that is referring to the real interest rate environment and what that spells for investors. Plus, we unpacked some key themes from his recently released book, You, Your Brain and the Market, in which Greg draws on some lessons from the Stoics, among others, and learning to master your own emotions during the topsy-turvy world of record-breaking, skyrocketing stock markets. So please grab a dog-eared copy of Aurelius's Meditations and your Dramamine, and join me for this week's conversation with Greg Canavan. Up next, I'm here with uh, with Greg Canavan, the uh, editor-in-chief of Greg Canavan's Investment Advisory. Mate, I know it's very early in the morning for you over there. So first of all, thanks for. Making the time for us and coming on the show. Not a problem, Joel. I uh, I get up early, mate. So this is uh, this is all good for me. Very good, very good. You've you've got a couple of young ones that have that have trained you into the early morning hours. <laughs> yes, they have. I try to beat them. So who knows? They might pop in here at some point and ask for something. We'll see. <laughs> very good so you're down um, in Wollongong or or the gong for for our Aussie listeners. Um, but I know you've you, we've been you and I have been in contact over the last couple of months and and you told me that you just relocated from Melbourne. Um, I'm interested to hear that story both because I want to get into talking a little bit about um, the Australian government's response to COVID, both both politically and uh, and economically. But I think your story is quite illustrative. Of you know the kind of effects that different state governments' responses had on you know everyday Australians just trying to get by, and do their work, and and live a decent life. So can you walk us through your what went through your mind when you packed up after a decade yeah, or so sure. in Melbourne and decided to head home?
1: Yeah, so we uh, we, we moved to Melbourne in uh, early 2012. Uh, moved down to Port Phillip Publishing to work with the, the guys down there. I'd been working. Uh, remotely for them for for some time, about twelve to eighteen months, and uh, it was time to move down and and join the business uh, physically. So, you know, loved the time in Melbourne. Uh, it was a great city, uh, and and was v- very happy there. Um, the fa- had had a family there. My second daughter was born there, and then, obviously, in two thousand and twenty, things uh, changed quite quite rapidly. Uh, you know, so Melbourne went through its first lockdown with the rest of Australia. Uh, in that sort of march April period, uh, and that you know that was a novelty. everyone was experiencing it for the first time uh, and and you know that phrase we're all in it together was was bandied around quite a bit and I think everyone <laughs> felt felt like that was representative of what the situation was um, and then we all came out of it together in terms of what I'm talking about we all I'm saying Australia uh, Victoria was the same situation uh, and then we had the the hotel quarantine. Uh, Situation in Melbourne where there was another outbreak. And that was coming in, that was around in the middle of winter um, in 2020. So winter in Australia, obviously, you know, um, June, July. uh, We were just uh, about ready to leave to visit grandparents in New South Wales, have a family visit. Um, I think we were two days away from leaving and the borders were shut. And then it went from borders shut to... Um, you can't leave five kilometres from your house. And then I went from you can't leave five kilometres to your house until you can't go out. There was a curfew from 8 o'clock at night, I think, to 5 a.m. in the morning. <clears throat> Kids were homeschooled. Um, you know, there was a rule that you could only go out. Uh, one person in the house could go out to to shop for essentials. Uh, and then it moved on to um, you have to leave the house with a face mask, and you can only not wear a face mask if you are exercising. Um, and this went on for a long time, and uh, we it got to a point where we I, I looked into the actual stats of it, and in in the in most of the areas in Melbourne, there were there was there were certain outbreaks where. Clearly, there needed to be some action taken, and that was in the north and west of, of Melbourne. For the vast area of Melbourne, all the cases were in nursing homes, mm. and I just realised that the lockdowns were because the government had no control. They had their contact tracing system was um, a shambles. Uh, they had no control over if there was new cases, how they would manage them, and so we. We got to a point where we thought, you know, th- these guys really don't know what they're doing here, and this is this is not um, this is not something that we that we're you know uh, happy with in terms of you know the citizens of the state of Victoria, and I guess the backdrop to all this was just the fear that was being pushed. So it was almost like um, to make up for our own incompetence, we are going to um, instill such amounts of fear into society that you will just comply with whatever we ask for. Um, you know, I remember taking the kids down to the local uh, strip to get some to get some food one night and, and just saw um, not even police, but security forces walking around, um, you know, intimidating people about face masks. I saw one woman pushed to the ground and handcuffed and I just thought, you know, this is this is insane. This is not really um, well. First of all, it's not necessary, and it, it, it's not not Australia. It's not how how I sort of grew up in this country, thinking things should be done. So I um and 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 at, around that time, there was these emergency powers that were pushed through, and there was a lot of uh, um, there was a lot of controversy at the time because the Andrews government was trying to. Uh, push for 12 months of emergency powers, and effectively, what that does is gives control to the bureaucracy. So the health mm-hmm. bureaucracy um, could make the rules and suspend the normal laws of, of Parliament. Um, so we lobbied, uh, you know, independent politicians to to try and not pass these emergency powers for another 12 months. Um, it sort of happened, they, they, you know, there was obviously some dealing going on in the background and they passed it for another three months um, instead. That situation just made us realise that, Melbourne or Victoria doesn't have this under control. Andrews is is intimidating. Dan Andrews, the the premier of the state, is intimidating the population through any type of protest against this sort of um, behavior it was shut down by the police force. Um, you know, really heavy handed stuff. And we thought, you know, if there's another outbreak a few months down the track, this government doesn't have it under control. Our family and friends are in New South Wales. Um, you know, we're done. We're out of here. So yeah uh we moved um we had to go through hotel quarantine we had to do um, all that sort of stuff and you know we eventually moved back in with my parents for a few months until we found a house so it was quite a disruptive period for the whole family um mm-hmm. but absolutely well worth it because new south wales has handled the whole thing completely differently um contact tracing systems are solid so when there's an outbreak there's only a small Part of the country that shut down um so we were we were happy to to, to move back
0: and um now we're settled settled here and we're we're all good oh mate I'm, well i'm very happy to hear that it's a that it seems that that it all's well that ends well but it's a, it, i can imagine it must have been pretty frightening at the time just seeing actually how quickly things can turn from you know i mean i i grew up in australia and and it's it, it's a very open transparent uh, easygoing kind of culture. And just to see something like that, um, you know, the, the old phrase, oh, it'll never happen here. I mean, that took whatever, a, a couple of weeks or, or maybe a month for that to just be kind of swept aside. And I mean, just looking from the outside in, um, I was seeing, you know, there was obviously the story about that, uh, the young woman, the young pregnant mother arrested in her pajamas. Yeah. And, and yeah. then we saw stories of of journalists who were, were covering the event at or, or covering press conferences rather for the Victorian government. And they were being led away in handcuffs. I mean, it, it, is, it, am I just getting like selective, you know, big tech algorithmic media <laughs> sent to no. me or is, or is it kind of like that? Is, is that what it's like on the ground?
1: Well, look, I think with media these days, you can choose your own adventure, you know, whatever bias <laughs> yeah. you have, you can find, <laughs> find what, what suits that. But, you know, more than anything, uh, the, the the mainstream media—they obviously profit from from fear as well, because people mm-hmm. tune in to find out what's going on. Um, right. One of the one of the side effects of moving to New South Wales, as I said, we moved in with um, my parents for a few months, and you know they're older; um, they consume uh, commercial commercial news. So I had to put up, and I don't watch TV. I very rarely uh, put the TV on, so I had to consume. Uh, mainstream news for months on end Mm. and the amount i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) uh it was it was a traumatic experience um ptsd still (laughs) recovering (laughs) but the 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 amount of um that there was just no nuance to that that news it was all towing the line it was all fear-based yeah and uh, you know uh, that's not what that's not what traditional journalism's about. That's not. And to give you an example, you know, you, you mentioned that the journalist being being handcuffed and you know all that sort of stuff. Anyone showing any sign of deviating from the, I guess you'd say party line. And sorry if you can hear that noise in the background. I've got cockatoos screeching. Um, no worries. Adds a little bit to the to the exotic ambiance. <laughs> um, uh, so there was a, a politician uh, in the Liberal Party called Craig Kelly, and he was one of the only guys who was out there trying to provide some alternative information on this narrative that we had been told that you all must have the vaccines. This is a very dangerous. You can't. You have to wear face masks. You have to do this. And he was talking about hydroxychloroquine, uh, ivermectin, which are treatments for. Covid in in the early stages, and they've been proven to be very effective, and and there's lots of studies out on that. He was shouted down by the media, by the Greens, by you know political opponents, labelled a conspiracy theory. So anyone who's deviated from that party line, even uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, gave him a public dressing down. Uh, and and to me, that's the most worrying thing is that you know civilized countries are are, are based on um debate, um, you know, independent thought, uh, you know, alternative views, as long as they're well researched and thought out, should be accepted in society and accepted into the debate. And that was completely shut down. And I think that's the that's the really worrying thing about this whole uh COVID issue is that um there has only been one official line of how to treat it and and that's Take your vaccine, and then we'll all get back to normal. And I and I think you know there's a lot of lot of issues around that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the 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 fatality rate for COVID across society is very very low, and there's there's big arguments as to whether you really need everyone in society vaccinated. Right. Um, but we just don't have that conversation. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying there should be a, a conversation about it, so people can make informed decisions, and that. So, so it makes me think, you know what what's what's the real agenda here? What's really going on because we just that that conversation is shut down. So yeah, that's it's, a concern.
0: It's, it's, you're absolutely right, and it's, and it's more than it's more than apparent how paralyzing an agent fear itself can be. when you know when people are living in utter panic that they're going to either you know contract this themselves or they're going to kill Grandma or the next person that they sneeze on at the bus stop then all of a sudden, you know, it, that that whole framework around which an open society has legitimate, rational, good faith, well-thought-out conversations really just grinds to a halt. And then there's there's only that tiny little, little bandwidth of acceptable thought and anything that deviates out of that, um, you know, including very important questions that need to be raised as we're just vaccinating the entire planet. Um, you know it would seem that we would want to have that we would want to give that very important discussion all exactly. of, uh, all of the you know the the disinfecting um daylight that that we possibly could and that doesn't seem to be the case but um so with regards to the situation now and we'll get on we'll get on to the to the economics and the the governmental policy response by way of monetary and and, and fiscal um concerns in a, in a second but with regards to the situation now uh you mentioned obviously you're up in new south wales have handled it very different differently with their contact tracing and that sort of stuff um it, is there some um, you know concern that there's i mean i have concern i'll have to confess that there's that there's a widespread kind of societal ptsd going on where uh you know if in australia or or in new zealand another country that has had a an extremely you know, draconian response to this kind of a zero tolerance response, there has to be some overhang where you have an entire society that is living one sneeze, one cough, one case away from a complete snap lockdown. I mean, how does that reorientate your way of thinking about the future, starting businesses, investing, you know, planning for your kid's future, what you want to do, life savings? I mean, all of those things are, if they can be severed just with 11 hours, 10 hours, 6 hours notice, um, you know, wh- wh- where does that leave us psychologically? Well, I think if you looked at states
1: like Victoria, I think that the, the psychological situation down there would be very different to, say, you know, Queensland, even New South Wales or, or, or WA, who Queensland and w- uh, Western Australia have had same sort of thing as um new zealand in a way zero tolerance they've, they've shut their borders they've made sure that um you know the virus cannot get in uh, and and therefore the people living there are having effectively normal normal lives the, the the but in order to create that normality they've had to shut their borders and and create a, a weird you know completely not norm, normal situation in order to achieve that so victoria's been through a couple of lockdowns now and it just went through another snap lockdown in the middle of the Australian Open, uh, funnily enough. Uh, so it was quite quite a public one there just for, you know, a number of days. And, and, and we were told at the time, um, you know, someone who had the super spreading COVID uh, strain from the UK had walked through the airport and potentially spread it around the country. And, and so uh, Melbourne, the whole state of Victoria went into another lockdown because of someone who walked through uh, or someone who worked at Tullamarine for a couple of hours, who had it. Tullamarine's the main airport in Melbourne.
0: Uh, shut down the whole state for I think five days. The whole state, just for people who are in the UK or in the US, who don't know, we're talking. This the state capital of Melbourne has what maybe five million people, something like that. Yeah, maybe uh, a little what, bit more, but that's around a, that. Yeah. Okay, a little bit more. So, so the state of Victoria, for people who are who are unaware of just the enormity of Australian geography, this is probably like. Um, you know the the entire northeast you know new England um, of of the United States or it 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 may be it yeah, take you t- take you you know five or seven hours to drive across it, I guess maybe even longer depending on which point you start and end at right <laughs> um, it's so a, we're talking it's, about it's a, big, a big place yeah. we're talking about an area you know an, an enormous area of you know millions and millions of people that have been just basically yeah, so pe- sent people home and people on house out on people out on
1: remote farms <laughs> were, <laughs> were, were were locked <laughs> so down sorry. so that it just it was just crazy and then lo and behold a few days later all back to normal this super spreading event hadn't happened um not saying it couldn't have i'm, I'm just saying that the, the response each time is so over the top mm. which either reflects a willingness to spread fear or a complete nutter utter incompetence in in knowing what this all, what this is all about, and how to manage it, and in both situations, it's pretty pretty
0: poor. It's not yeah, good. Yeah, neither of it, neither of it instills a whole lot of confidence, does it? Yeah, so, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's a there is some level of uh, of gaslighting going on. You know, getting getting people used to the fact that they can you know turn off the lights or send you home for house arrest at, at the drop of a hat. But we, let's move on to uh from the kind of political uh, response, particularly the Aussie government to what went on uh in the in the financial markets in the capital markets and the the monetary the fiscal response because you'll know these figures a lot better than i do but I'd, I'd seen something recently that the australian government per capita had spent something like the seventh or eighth most money in the world despite the fact that there is as you mentioned you know there's a three or four cases in brisbane there's six cases here and there i mean you know it we probably have a hundred cases in the building that I'm sitting in right now down in Argentina, I mean they don't have the money to spend, but it seemed like once again a really outsized response um, is, is that your kind of takeaway there, or, or yeah, look, absolutely, and
1: I think one of the reasons why uh, Australia did that is I, I guess because it could I mean mm-hmm. Australia for some time, its government finances relative to many other governments around the world have been in reasonably good shape so it has the ability to to spend quite a lot of money and go into you know uh, go into, into into debt because its net debt levels have been have been pretty low I mean the the COVID response has completely um, changed that and now our, our government debt is getting up there but it's still nowhere near the areas of you know other developed Countries, um, US, Japan, UK, um, Europe—all those, all that sort of stuff. So uh, the response was so strong because we could, um, and because I think the Treasury advice at the time was just to go really, really hard because effectively um, it was an income shock to the economy. We'd shut everything down, and no one could earn an income. Mm-hmm. And there were um, specific areas of the economy that were that were very. Um, hard hit so tourism is obviously a big industry in Australia uh, education is another big one uh, a lot of people don't know that Australia's um, I think in the top five exports is, is education which means um, a lot of overseas students especially from Asia come in to uh, get um, university degrees or college degrees so that that completely shut down uh, and then obviously the whole um, uh, you know Cafe and restaurant scene was completely um, obliterated. So, the government brought in a uh, what they call a job seeker and a job keeper payment, which is uh, still going. By the way, um, so our economy is 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 quite strong. If you go out, um, certainly, you know, just on an anecdotal level, you go out and you do, I I just see things working as normal. Obviously, anything related to international tourism is still going to struggle, but. Domestic tourism has, has compensated for that. You go anywhere that's, you know, where I live, you can travel 20 minutes down the coast to lovely beachside towns. And even in the middle of the week, my parents just come back from a, a down-the-coast trip. Uh, on a Monday at a small coastal town, places were packed, restaurants were packed. So there's people that are almost captive To their you know previously captive captive to their homes now captive to their local areas uh, and they're going out and spending money because there is plenty of money in the economy because the government has effectively uh you know doubled unemployment um payments there were cases where you know younger people who you know previously worked in a, a a job either as a barista or a cafe or uh waiter or something like that were getting paid twice as much by getting a government handout as they were in their jobs. And then when the cafe started to open back up, the owners were struggling to get the people to come back and work because it was easier just to sit at home and get the. Uh, get the Why job take a pay payment. cut? Why take a pay cut to go to, to work? Exactly, to actually do something. So, um, you know, on the one hand, it's had a beneficial effect on the economy because. People are spending at furniture stores and, and electronics, and you know retailers are doing doing very very well. Uh, but on the other side of that, you've obviously got a massive debt pile that needs to be serviced over time. And while well, interest rates are low, that's not a big deal. Uh, and you know, I, I think all governments around the world are really enjoying the fact that right now debts don't matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, they're, so, they're, so they're spending as, as much as they, they want. But everyone knows that at some point that comes back to bite you and you know whether we're going to get to that point sooner rather than later, who knows. But um, I can't remember the exact stat it was, but it's in the, in the multi-trillions, uh, the amount of debt that the world has increased by just in the last 12 months. Um, And, you know, we we now have to carry that debt. We need to pay it off. And, 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 you know, talking about bond yields rising and inflation coming, the world cannot handle higher bond yields. At some point, that will have an effect on growth and it will slow things down and then we'll, 12 months' time, we'll be back and talking about, you know, uh, what's the next set of, stimulus efforts that can, that can drag the economy out of a hole because when, when the global economy has record debt, and I think the number was something like 330% of global GDP that uh, the debt represents now, which is a record, it is, it is very difficult to get sustainable takeoff growth when that comes in. I know everyone's talking about inflation coming, but I don't think you're going to get sustainable inflation when you've still got unemployment, Quite um, quite high you've got wages growth very very stagnant because of that unemployment level and to me the the overarching risk is still deflation um, mm-hmm. so you know and that's a direct result of just another injection of massive amounts of debt into the you know the Aussie economy, the global economy it's happened everywhere right
0: so let's talk about all that money that's that's sloshing around and in particular what people your readers, for example, uh, are, are are doing to kind of maintain their purchasing power. So you uh, you released a report a little while ago called uh, I think it was called Life at Zero, uh, and that's referring, of course, to negative real interest rates, um, and that being an erosive or a corrosive um, agent on the purchasing power of individuals, you know, savings accounts, uh, bank accounts, etc. Uh, what in general i know you probably can't go into specifics because of your paid up readership but what kind of things are you generally looking at in the market and uh, encouraging your readers to to do in order to kind of safeguard their own hard earned there
1: yeah it's i think it's a really pertinent question because a lot of people so i think the the, the market sort of split in into uh, post covid and and because of all this money that went into the hands of um, of, of lots of people that that all of a sudden went, okay, what am I gonna do with this cash? I mean, th- that you can either earn almost zero nominal rates and, and negative uh, real rates by putting your money in a cash account and, and saving, or you can have a pun on the stock market. So right. a lot of people, and you know, this lot's been said of this Robin Hood phenomenon in, in the US and it's a similar situation in Australia. A lot of speculative small stocks have gone absolutely crazy. And these are the ones that are making the headlines. So the result of that, I think, is a lot of more experienced people in the stock market sit back and think, this is crazy. What do I do here? If I, if I play in the stock market, I'm going to blow up. If I put my money in cash, I'm going to bleed slowly over time because cash is not earning anything. So what I tried to do with this report and what we call the, the Life at Zero report was to I guess, lay out a framework for how you can still invest in this market without taking crazy risks. And and in Australia, I think we're a little luckier because we have avoided or we we don't have large amounts of tech Stocks in our indexes. So, you know, Australia is a very old economy style of uh, stock market index. So, you look at the ASX 200, which is the top 200 stocks in the in the country, and that is largely made up of you know financials and resource companies and industrials, those sorts of, um, a lot of, lot of old primary style. Industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those sorts of old style stocks, and relative to 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 what's happened in the in the world of tech. Um, they're still quite good value. I mean, I just recommended a stuff um, that is that has owns very qu- high quality commercial real estate, and it was trading at less than half of its book value, and and that that's just a mispricing based on the COVID shutdowns. Mm-hmm. So there th- there are a lot of opportunities out there. So w- what I was trying to do with that report and and tell my subscribers is that try to not focus on the headlines so much and look underneath. Uh, some of the things that are going on, and you'll find you know pretty pretty good bargains out there. so I use um you know just a, a standard discounted cash flow valuation model. Uh, I use a, a discount rate that's a pretty conservative one, so a discount rate means what you're discounting future cash flows back to the present value to try to evaluate um, stocks and what they're really worth and i'm fine. I'm using an eight uh, percent discount rate, which when you look at Government bond yields that are sitting below two percent, which is effectively the risk the risk free rate, right? So I'm I'm using eight percent to value some companies, and I'm still seeing good value out there. So I don't think it's a case of looking at the headline stocks, or you look at the Nasdaq or the S and P five hundred, and you see it, you know, record highs after record highs, even though they have some of those have pulled back recently. If you look if you look underneath. Those sort of main headline indexes and, and the, the sort of glamour stocks in there, you can still find good value, and I think that's the message that I'm, uh, you know, out there with saying that you know if if you're if you're saving for your retirement, if you're building up your nest egg, um, you don't have to take crazy risks. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the stock market is risky, of course it is. If you're gonna. Volatility is the price you pay uh, to, to play in that game. Um, and there will be times where we have 10, 15, 20% corrections. But you know, guess what happens when we have a 20% correction? The central banks and the governments come out and they do more to push push things up, devalue value currencies. And you know, it's funny in that report I use an example of the um, of Argentina and and over I think since 2013, the Argentinian stock market has gone up by 18,000 <laughs> <laughs> percent.
0: That and would be ge- in pesos, I'm assuming.
1: And is guess what? Yeah, yeah, that's yes. all to do with that's all to do with pesos. But the, the the point I was trying to make is when when governments try to do what they've been doing, and they will continue to do it, the currency is the one that suffers, and and people move their money out of cash and they put it into real assets, and whether that real asset is precious metals or commodities or land uh or or you know stocks with with um with physical assets that that's 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 what captures the money it's it's Mm -hmm. not so so it's a it's a different, it's just a different way of looking things. And I know, and I and I use that example because a lot of people say, hey, why would I put my money in the stock market? You know, the, the government's doing this, there's this happening, it's all crazy. You know, I'm far better off sitting in cash. And I'm like, no, no, look, look at what's happened in, in these other countries. I mean, Turkey's another example. You know, their economy's not not strong. There's a lot of stuff going on there. People put their money in private assets because they're not confident and not in any way happy with the way the government's managing the situation. So, I think that's the, that's the overarching um, message is that over time, uh, governments will devalue their currencies um, against real assets and therefore your, your best defense is to actually play the game and, and get into it, but do so in a sensible way where you value assets and um, make sure you're not, you know, jumping on the latest sort of, you know, crazy hot thing that can blow up in, in six
0: months time. Very unfashionable, Greg, to be recommending companies with actual positive cash flows and business plans and roadmaps to you know sustainable growth and such. Well,
1: this is <laughs> this is old the school, thing, right? <laughs> like, it, it, un- unpopular. What you want to do is find the unpopular that becomes the popular, and yes, um quite right. And you know, I think at some point you get a shift of, in mindset, and and you know, investing is is. One part valuation, one part um, sussing out the the psychological state of the market, or, or or where or where investors' heads at, and and if you can if you can sort of try to fast forward three to six months and work out where the market might be going, and all I do is just think, well, there's value on offer. At some point, the market is gonna is gonna turn around and look at that and think, well, that that looks pretty good to me, you know, and, and I think we're starting to see a bit of a shift at the moment. If you look at companies like Tesla in the US, I mean, you know, that had a vertical run up into January. And then that, to me, that, that, that sort of, Bubble has started to pop. So if you look at it on a chart, you think, okay, well, that that sort of bubble looks like it's started to pop. But what happens to the psychology investors who have held that, they start to question their position. They start to think, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't own so much of this. So I might, I might, right. you know, reduce my position. I'm going to look elsewhere. So once that, once that um money starts to move from the the hot growth stocks, it's got to, it's got to go somewhere else. And and, and you know, in my view, it'll start to move into these neglected uh, industries and neglected companies that are still generating cash flows and uh, in a world of you know zero interest rates if you if you got a
0: yield of 3 4 5% then that's pretty attractive yeah good as me. that's uh, it's funny to think that we're that we're talking now about tesla having um, you know just kind of plateaued off that very very uh, precipitous kind of nosebleed run up into the Beginning of Q1 of this year, and it it does make you think how many people who got in maybe you know November, December Q4 last year, and had psychologically just kind of acclimated themselves to their money doubling every you know <laughs> however mm. long or, or going up. This all of a sudden they look and they see, hang on a second, it's it's not uh, you know we're not having ten percent weeks or or twenty percent fortnights or this kind of thing, and. The, I assume that there's going to be a lot of weak hands at the top of that that are kind of looking around for the egress and keeping an eye on every other poker at the table and wondering exactly. if they're not thinking the same thing.
1: So, yeah, I uh, think that, that
0: moment started. So I, I wanted to mention your uh, your book here that, uh, that you sent over. It's called You, Your Brain and the Stock Market. And in this, you highlight ways in which you say that your brain is our brains are deceiving us into kind of making wrong-headed decisions because I think this is a good it's a good segue from uh, you know from frothy, hyper growth stocks <laughs> into. Uh, <laughs> so, do you want to just kind of unpack your your thesis there? And I mean, I've I've kind of been led to believe for a long time that it's our gut that's uh, that's working against us and holding us back but you say it's uh it's our brain that's that's hobbling us what do you mean well i
1: guess that the, the gut is the manifestation of the brain signals right like it's you <laughs> okay. know if we if we if we if, if we're feeling queasy it's because you know we we're, we're feeling the effects of the chemicals that our brains giving off so p- part of um what what i what i did in the book is devoted a couple of subjects to how the brain works under conditions of fear and greed and and what what chemicals that get sent out now we've evolved because of survival reasons. And what makes you survive in the stock market is very different to what makes you survive in, in um, I guess, more primitive times where, you know, survival was a, was a different kettle of fish to what it is now. So I tried to point out that how, you, how, you do, how your brain deals with things in the stock market is a result of evolution, which, is, which the stock market has only been around for a couple hundred years. So we tend to do things under... Conditions of greed and fear that are the complete wrong wrong way to act, and that's why people get sucked up in bubbles. That's why people sell at lows. Um, so th- there's there's ways that you can that you can manage that that um, those emotions. Um, and I think being aware of them is one thing, because most of the time people will just act on emotion at the worst possible time. Whereas if you're aware of your emotions, you can rationalise them and before you click the buy button or the sell button, you can have that conversation with yourself and say, look, you know, is this an emotional purchase? Have I done my work? Have I followed my process? And so part of the, part of the book as well is outlining a process that you can, a simple process that you can implement to make sure that you're not reacting on emotion, that you're acting on a rational reason for, you know, making a buy or sell decision. And the, the, area or the reason why this this book came about is because I had a a personal um, experience myself that really made me examine how I go about investing. Um, So I came into investing in the early 2000s as a youngster. Um, I borrowed some money from my, my old man and thought, yep, I'll, uh, I'll pay him some interest on that. You know, he I'll give him more interest than what he can get in the bank. I'll, I'll double the money and I'll, I'll pay him back. And uh, I, so I, I bought gold very very early on in the piece uh, of the of the bull, bull market. And I held gold for a long time. And um, I, I guess you know, there was confirmation bias, I'd read stuff about why Gold was going to continue to go up and when the bear market hit in 2011-2012, I was completely unprepared for it because I told myself for years um, why Gold was going up. And at the time, not sure if you remember, but the European Central Bank was was bailing out uh, Greece. There was all sorts of problems in the euro, um, and I thought Cyprus bail gold, in happened a couple. Yeah, and I thought surely okay. gold's going to go up in in such an environment. And of course, it went down and it went down. And um, you know, while I did really well in the bull market, I got absolutely butchered in the bear market, and it made me. Um, it, it, I guess one of the core things that came came out of that for me is that, you know, you need to embrace your own ignorance. You cannot think that you know stuff in the market. The market is always smarter than you, and you have to be humble. And if you go into any investment situation thinking that you know what the outcome is going to be, you will get killed. And, you know, what the, the, the one of the reasons why I really like the stock market is it, you know, makes you think and keeps you on your toes every day. But it, it's also a great psychologist if you... Are willing to, you know, have a moment of um, introspection and think about things and how you behave under under pressure. Um, so, I sort of wrote this book with all that sort of stuff in mind and laid out um, reasons why your brain does things to you that, you know, um, you look back on and think, how could I have done that? Why did I do that? Because you do so under emotional stress. Um, and then I laid out a. a A process that helps you to deal with that emotional stress, and and, you know, there's certainly no way that you can avoid it. It's always going to happen because that's the way we've evolved uh, to to deal with with pressure situations. But I think if you're aware of those things, you can um, control it in some ways, and hopefully make people better investors by being aware of those things. So that was the that was the idea behind it. Um, It's just just come out in the last couple of. Couple of weeks. Um, you can find it on Amazon, um, and yeah,
0: mate, fantastic. Sounds like a like a very sensible Stoic approach to uh, to managing erratic emotions well, in a tumultuous market. I was going to say Marcus Aurelius does get a few quotes in there, so That's yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, uh, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I've taken up a good chunk of of your morning. Um, but one final question before before I let you go. Uh, it, if and when you do, um, you know you you are let out again into the big wide world. Uh, have you got your eye on any vacation destinations abroad? Can we expect you uh, over in Argentina for a quick visit, or what, what? are the plans?
1: Well, I guess it all depends on whether I need to have a jab in order to to travel or oh, yes. not. So, um, <laughs> look, I'm I consider myself a pretty healthy healthy guy. I don't need I yep. I don't need a vaccine, and and uh, you know certainly not one that hasn't been testing for very long, and has been, you know, very recently. And I think everyone needs to have a lot more respect for what they put into their body, um, unquestioningly. If you do your research and you're happy with it, fine. But I wouldn't necessarily uh, blindly believe in big pharma and governments that you need to have this thing. So I would love to travel. My wife's uh, part Turkish. Uh, we've got family in Turkey. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. We've visited it before. I'd love to go back there and see some, see some family, and and take my daughters there. Um, to to get in touch with their culture um but you know I, unfortunately it's probably not not necessarily in my hands and we'll see what the uh see what the rules
0: around that are before making a decision okay. indeed well mate argentina and turkey obviously both very cost-effective places to visit uh when you do get when you do get around Absolutely. to it and you I, know it's a big water there i'd love to see it and i think marcus aurelius would be very very approving of that healthy dose of dose of skepticism so mate uh Let's leave it there for the moment. Uh, I can't wait to have you back on and, uh, and we'll pick it up next time. No worries, Joel. Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.